Let me begin today by asking a question. Should believers in Jesus Christ observe the Sabbath? Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. That's the question we shall be considering today as we continue our journey to work together through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're very welcome whether you're here for the first time or you've been here all along. If you are here for the first time, then why not consider hitting on that subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts from, and that way you need never miss another single episode. That way you have made the decision to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. If you are here for the first time, then hang around at the end and I'll tell you lots of ways you can get free additional Bible teaching resources. Things like a transcript of every episode, episode notes, and links to other places where I put extra free Bible teaching and Bible study resources. So with that all said, let's pick up where we left off last time and continue our time studying together. Let me begin today by reminding you that the Sabbath day is Saturday. The Sabbath day means the seventh day of the week. So the question I'm asking today is really, should we as Christian believers worship on Saturday instead of Sunday? I wonder how you would answer that and how you think what you think about that. Some would say, well, it was part of the Ten Commandments, so therefore we should do what it says. Well, you see, that's the issue I want to address tonight. It's actually more than should we just keep the Sabbath, should we be meeting on a Saturday instead of a Sunday. It's much bigger than that. It's bigger because, of course, that is one of the Ten Commandments, and it's bigger because that is part of the Mosaic Law. And this is bigger because it involves all of Scripture itself. So with that in mind, we're going to go to initially this Old Testament passage that we've reached today in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 31. And then we're going to look at it and unpack it a bit in the light of New Testament. Now this passage we're talking about is actually talking about the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. And it's referring to the Sabbath. But I want to remind you that where we are, the Lord has taken Moses up to Mount Sinai. And up there he's given him the law. And we've been looking at that for some time now, haven't we? We actually started it way back in chapter 25. And at this point, he's still on top of Mount Sinai. And the Lord is still giving Moses his instructions. But this passage we're arrived at today is a sort of a conclusion, not only of this chapter, but of this whole extended section where Moses has been atop of the mountain and God has been issuing all types of instructions, ordinances and explanations. So there are two parts of the passage that we're going to look at today. The first, it talks about the Sabbath, and then it reaches some conclusions on what it's talking about. So we're going to begin by reading the opening verse. We're going to be covering verses 12 to 18 today, quite a short passage in this compared to normal. And we'll begin, and I'll read you the first couple of verses, which say, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you, and throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
Now this word sanctifies, we've met it before several times. It simply means to set apart. So this Sabbath day was to be a sign, a symbol, a sign to the fact that God has a special relationship with his people and that he wants them set apart to him. That's the whole point of this. Now at this point this is unique to Israel. As a matter of fact it distinguished Israel from all the other nations at that time. No other nation on the world, no other nation on earth observed anything like the Sabbath. So the Lord says this is going to be a sign that you people are different to everyone else. That you've been separated, set apart from me and that you belong to me. And of course this becomes very important in Israel's history. One author said the importance of the sign is seen in the insistence of the latter prophets that Sabbath keeping was an indication of the spiritual condition of the people. So later we will see prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel talking about the fact that because the people are not keeping the Sabbath that that stands as an indication of their lack of spirituality. Alright, so the Sabbath is a sign and in the Old Testament this was indeed a serious business. So the next thing happens is verse 14, the next verse, gives the penalty if the people break it. And it says, You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among the people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wow, that's a strong penalty, isn't it? Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. And whoever does work, any work on it, that person shall be cut off from their people. So it's pretty clear here. If you profane it, you die. You work on a Saturday, you cut it off. The only question here is what does cut off mean? Now some say that it means just banishment. But others are clear that it also means that if you do this, you'll be put to death. But either way, this is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? So there's clearly a lot to discuss here. It's pretty straightforward. Saturday, remember, is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. He says that very clearly. It's the seventh day. It's not the first day of the week. It's the seventh day. And if you do any work on any kind on that day, then you're cut off. If you profane it, you're executed and you die. Now, in the overall context of Exodus, we, of course, have been talking about the rules for the building of the tabernacle. And he didn't want to build the tabernacle, even his own house, on the seventh day, on the Saturday. No work, nothing on the Sabbath day. That's what is proclaimed here. And verse 16 tells us how long this principle is to apply. It says, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. So this was not a temporary sign during the life of Moses or Joshua or even Samuel. This was for this was declared here to be for all the generations of Israel, and they're told to keep it in the sign, and then verse seventeen says, It is a sign between me and and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord had made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. He rested and was refreshed. So in order that everybody can get the idea, he 
pulls in the fact that even in the creation, the Lord rested on the seventh day. He's going all the way back to Genesis 1 and the creation story in that God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. And that's what I want you to do. So these are the instructions for the Sabbath. Now let's look at the concluding verse. And that's a sort of conclusion to this whole section over many chapters that have gone before. So verse 18 says, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now that's a very important verse and we need to look at it carefully. The first part of it is pretty self-evident. He's finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives him two stone tablets and these are called, referred to as the tablets of testimony. These are the two tablets upon which is written the Ten Commandments, which is why they're called the tablets of testimony. And they're called that because they testify as to God's standard. But here's what I want you to note. It says that on these two tablets was written the Ten Commandments by the finger of God. I don't know if you've noticed that. You see it in Exodus 31:18 here. It tells us that the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. And I wonder what that means. Does it mean God actually has a finger? This is not the first time something like this has occurred in the Bible and elsewhere. We've seen phrases like his hand is not shortened and he cannot save. Does that mean God has a hand? I mean, if his hand is shortened, then surely that means he's a hand. And now it's talking about his finger. It says he wrote the Ten Commandments with the finger of God. Well, let me just clarify. This is what theologians call, they give it a fancy word and they call it anthropomorphism. From the Greek term anthropos, which in Greek simply means man. So anthropomorphism is attributing to God a human characteristic in order to make him understandable to us. It doesn't mean that God actually has a finger or a hand. It means that God just wrote the Ten Commandments. He was the inspiration behind them and they are directly his word as if they were written by hand. So this is meant to underscore the fact that these words that appear on the tablets of stone are of divine origin. In other words, it's clearly saying, look, these aren't something that Moses made up in the desert or figured out for himself. He went up to on a mountain and God dictated it to him and he wrote it down. This is a direct message to the world, to the people from God. And Israel's religious revelation in this way is a unique contribution to human civilization. Much as the Greeks developed amazing philosophy and the Romans displayed a genius for organization and empire building, yet these are just worldly achievements in comparison and they miss the point of scripture entirely. The Bible at no point speaks of the genius of Israel or the astonishing gifting of Moses. It refers all of this revelation back directly to the finger of God as coming directly from God himself. And that's the conclusion here of this whole session we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now. Going all the way back to chapter 25 verse 1. This section concludes with the record of Moses receiving these commandments during the 40 days and nights he was on the mountain. And it ends here in verse 31 chapter 18 saying all these things were given directly by God. And included in that, of course, is what it said here about the Sabbath day. The Bible has made it clear that this is to be a sign. 
Now, there are a number of covenants in the Bible that have signs. So the first of all, let me just ask you, do you know what the covenants are? Do you know the covenants in the Bible and what are the signs relating to them? Well, there are, in fact, four covenants in the Bible. Let me tell you what they are. There's the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then finally, the new covenant. So what was the sign of the covenant with Noah? Can you remember? That's an easy one, the rainbow. What was the sign of the covenant made with Abraham? That was circumcision. What was the sign of the Mosaic covenant? Now this one's a a tough one. Well, maybe until today, the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. So we've got one more. We've three of the four, but we haven't got to the last one, which is the new covenant. I wonder if you know what the sign, the representation, the sign of that is. Well, let me tell you, it's the Lord's Supper. It's communion. The Lord's Supper, the joining together for a fellowship meal and remembering him, is the sign of the new covenant. So let me ask you a question. I've used it to frame this way in terms of our whole approach to the Mosaic Law, and that is, should we keep the Sabbath? Should Christians, because of all this, quit meeting on a Sunday and begin meeting on a Saturday? There are some who say that we should do that. There are some who do do that. Well, Romans chapter 6.14 is very helpful about this because it tells us in one sentence this, For sin shall not have domination over you, for you are now not under law, but under grace. As clearly as any language can say it, it says here that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not under the law. However, some would reply back, yeah, but there are different types of law. Which, what is it referring to here? Because we know that there's the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Well, the ceremonial law is now physically done away with. It no longer even exists, not even in the nation of Israel today. Then there's the civil law, those laws that were given to Moses about all that stuff we talked about, how to build a house or how to put fences around things, even how to take responsibility for your neighbor's property. All that explanation and examples given of the application of the commandments, that mosaic legislation. That's the civil law. And then there, of course, is the Ten Commandments themselves. One point of view I've heard says it means that you're not under the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, all that stuff about him being the Lamb of God, so that you don't need to consider yourself to be under any of the ceremonial or the civil law. But there are others who say, no, we're not under ceremonial, but we're under the civil law and the moral law. So is that true? Well, most mainstream Christians would say and agree absolutely you're not under the ceremonial law or the civil law. But what about the moral law? Are we under that? Well, here's a problem when approaching this whole issue. These ideas about the parts of the law, they're useful for helping us understanding their application. But the Bible doesn't actually divide them up like that. The Bible has a view and views the law as a unit, as something given to Moses in its entirety. There are three ways in which we can approach it, which help in our understanding, but it is still, in fact, a single thing. There is one law, if you like, with three aspects. So the key question is, if we're not under the law, then the heart of answering this question is to think about what it means to be under the law. And the New Testament is telling us that we're not under the law. 
it tells us that we are no longer under condemnation when we haven't kept the law. So what I'm saying is that as Christians, no, we're not under the law in any ways because we're not under its condemnation. Because we have been saved by the blood of Christ, we can therefore no longer fall under its condemnation or be due its punishment. So we're not under the law, any part of the Mosaic law. Let me make this clear, because I know on the surface it may sound controversial, but I can assure you this is the orthodox Christian view. You are not under the law of Moses. You're not under the civil law. You're not under the ceremonial law. You're not even under the moral law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, which of course includes this thing called the Sabbath. In other words, what it means by that is that law, all aspects of it, now do not have the power to condemn you anymore. That's the important point. So I'm sure some of you are saying, does that really mean that we're not under the commandments? And listen, friends, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's not just me. Listen, Romans 6 verse 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. So he's addressing this and saying, yeah, you're not under it anymore. You're not under condemnation of it, but it doesn't give you freedom to just go out and do what they want. In fact, in the rest of chapter six, he will go out and explain that the fact of the matter is that you are free from sin. You are no longer a slave to it. And that's the whole unpacking of that in Romans six. Look at the beginning then of Romans seven, verse one. It says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak of those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So notice, this is a really fascinating argument. It's saying, yeah, the law did have dominion. As human beings, we were under it for as long as we live. All right, does that make it appear that we're back under the law again? If the law only applies as long as we live? Because we're alive today, aren't, aren't you? Yes, we are in a sense. But here it's saying, once you're dead, you're not under the law. So if you want to get out from under the law and it's part to condemn you it's really simple you simply need to die right and that's the point paul makes here and illustrates this for us in the verse that follows he says for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives but if the husband dies she is released from the law of her husband so then if while her husband lives she marries another man she of course is called an adulteress but if the husband dies she is free from that law so she is no adulteress, although she becomes married to another man. So the illustration being used here is that of a married husband or wife and the partner dies. And the law says, well, obviously at that point you're no longer married because it was till death us to part. So that law no longer applies. So if you marry someone else, you've not broken the law. If you did it while you were alive, they did do. But if a person dies... They are no longer under that jurisdiction of that law, that rule, and the law doesn't apply. And that's Paul's point here in verse 1. He's saying that law has no dominion over you as long as you're dead. If you're dead, the law doesn't apply. Do you see what's going on here? It's a fascinating and clever illustration. He's using the illustration of marriage and how the rules change when you die and applying it to our spiritual state. Which is why, in verses 3 and 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. 
What an amazing parallel he's made. To really appreciate this verse, you need to understand that the first part, the previous chapter, all of Romans 6 is talking about the fact that when you've trusted Christ, you're united to Christ. And that when you did that, the old you, your old self died. Your past life died. And now you have been raised to a new life and you are now identified and united with Christ in his death and resurrection. That term and phraseology is used all throughout the New Testament. So you died that day and you were raised with Christ. That's the image of the baptism service as well. And that's what's being said here. Basically, he's saying you became dead to the law the moment that you chose to identify with Christ, to be saved by him, to be joined with him. Here's the phrase you hear bandied around a lot, to be born again. That's what it means. That's where Christians get this expression from. I've died, and because I've died, this old law doesn't apply to me anymore because I'm dead to it. Galatians 2.27 says you were crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. That previously not having Christ living in the life I now live, I now live, live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's the point, friends. I'm not, you're not under that law anymore. Listen, Paul continues, Romans 7.7 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said you shall not covet. So what's he referring to here? Where does the Bible say you shall not covet? The Ten Commandments, right. So here he's talking about the law in Romans 7 and he's absolutely including those original commandments and coveting is the example of it. And he's saying that that no longer applies. So this passage teaches all the way through Romans 6 and 7. Read the whole thing if you've got the time. The whole basis is of it is saying you're not under the law. The whole law doesn't apply to you in its powers and penalties because you're now under grace. Because we died spiritually, we are now united to Christ. We're married to another. We aren't married, united, linked to that old law. It doesn't apply to us anymore. What it exists to do for us now, what it was always meant to do, was simply to help define sin and, in a sense, create boundaries and proper behaviour between people. And although that aspect of it is still very useful to us, it no longer has the power that it used to have to condemn us. All of that power is gone and that includes the power, no longer have the power to damage our relationship with God the Father. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6 says, He who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, but not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. So he's talking here about the new covenant compared to the old covenant. And the old covenant was a covenant of the letter. And by letter, he simply means that it was written down. It was scribed. We saw it was scribed in stone here, engraved on stone as the Ten Commandments. Listen to what he says in verse 11 when he talks about this new covenant compared to the old. For if what is passing away was glorious, what now remains is much more glorious. Verse 13. 
unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the end at what was passing away. He is clearly teaching, there's no question about it, he's talking about the old covenant, the Mosaic law, and comparing it with the new covenant, and he says, yeah, both, they had their, their, their time, they both were glorious, but this old covenant was written, engraved in stone and in books, and that is passing away, friends. The Ten Commandments are passing away in their power and their penalty, and as Christian believers, we're no longer under that law. Now, I know that this whole teaching can make some people nervous. And I get that. And I'll get to that in a minute. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is one of my favourite passages in the New Testament in terms of, of trying to keep reach an understanding on it. I literally stumbled upon it many years ago. But it has convinced me wholly of the, the fact that we are not under the law at all of any kind. Because it talks about in Galatians 23-24, it says, Therefore the law was our tutor. So for Christians, the law and the purpose of the law became something else. It even might say in hindsight we recognize that it stood for something else. It stood as the means by which we learned and we understood of our need of salvation, our need of Christ. It was our tutor in the sense that brought us to an understanding of our need to the fact that we need to be justified by faith. But of course, after faith comes, after we are delivered from its power, then the law no longer stands as a tutor in that way. So however you cut this, it's clear that in any translation, after faith comes, we are no longer under the law no longer under the power of the law, no longer under the penalty of the law, and one day and one day we will be taken out of the very presence of those who are still under it. So friends, we're no longer under the moral law, we're no longer under the civil law or the ceremonial law. None of those things can save us and make us right with God. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 10. It says, You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid for you, lest I have laboured in vain for you. So there God is pointing out the fact that all these day observations, which must include the Sabbath, none of those, we are not under any obligations to any of those, any feast, any festival, any day. So how are we doing so far? I trust I've convinced you that you're no longer under the law, you're under grace. Another scripture. Turn to me to Colossians chapter 2. Listen to me when I read you verse 14. It says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of our way and nailed it to the cross. This is referring back to that handwriting, this finger idea. And this is a direct reference to the law. It's a direct reference to the Ten Commandments. And he says he's wiped that all out. Imagine this law written on tablets of stone and something comes along and completely erases it. He removes it, he carries it off and then he nails it to the cross. You can't get any more vivid an image than this of the end of the power of the law. The document that stood as a testimony of our contrary state to the plan of God, if you like, the notice that it served against us has now been cast aside. 
The ultimate thing is, friends, we are free from the Mosaic Law, and that included the handwritten part, which was the Ten Commandments. Let me read to you again, finally, from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, that great book in explaining the Old Testament in the right light of the New. And now it says, A new covenant has been made. The first is now obsolete, and now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to completely vanish away. That's a really interesting argument and perspective from the book of Hebrews. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, yeah, just go read the Old Testament. You'll find the Abrahamic covenant there. You'll find the Davidic covenant and you'll find the Mosaic covenant. But then now you can find the new covenant. Listen to what he's saying. He's actually saying if the Mosaic covenant was intended to be permanent, would we need the new covenant that is referenced there? The very fact that there is a mention of a coming new covenant in the Old Testament that there is a new covenant coming indicates that these earlier covenants were one day going to be obsolete. Let me tell you, it's about to vanish away, he's saying in the book of Hebrews, and that in fact turned out to be the case. The book of Hebrews was actually written around 63-64 AD, and sure enough, in AD 70, less than seven years later, after the book of Hebrews was written, the Romans demolished the temple in Jerusalem, and the observance of the Mosaic law in all its ceremonial form literally came to a complete end. So got it? Have I convinced you? I hope so. We, you and I, are not under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic law, any part of it. Now I know that makes some Christians nervous. They worry that we might end up living lawless lives. But the truth of the matter is, as a believer, if you've made that, did that mean you suddenly went out and went mad? Are you lawless? No, we're not lawless. That is not the experience of the Christian believer. That is not the experience of those who are not under the law of Moses. And that is because we're under a different law. And what law are we now under? And the answer is we're now under the law of Christ. You and I, it's true, we're not under the law of Moses anymore. But it does mean we're now under the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? Well, I can give it to you in one word. And that one word is the word love. Jesus himself said, A new law I give to you, that you should love one another. All you have to worry about now, friends, is all the other stuff, all the rules and regulations, even the days and the ceremonials, all those you can let stand or let pass. None of them have any power and your no requirements are made of you for any of them. Because Jesus said, I've replaced all of that with saying you just now need how to learn to love. But learn to love the way Jesus taught us to love. To love the Lord and to love one another and that's it. And of course loving the Lord means obeying him as well. St Augustine summed it up very nicely when he just said love God and do as you please. But in reality, if you really love God, then you won't violate anything God wants you to do, right? But if you do, then you still know that you can be forgiven. Let me show that this is spelled out in specific detail. If we go back into Romans, Romans 13 verse 8, it says, No one, anything except love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Did you see that? If you love you're going to fulfill the law. 
the next verse for the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness you shall not covet so let me stop there again these are the commandments the ten commandments each spirit bearing specifically to these the moral law of god and look what he says if there are any other commandments in other words summing them all up reading from the text again all are summed up in this saying namely you shall love your neighbor as yourself love does no harm to a neighbor therefore love is the fulfillment of the law have you got it do you see how simple this all is if you love your neighbor and love god then you will do your neighbor low harm thereby love fulfills the requirement of the whole law of god jesus says i want you to love people like i have loved you which means loving people sacrificially you and i are no longer under the law of moses in any way we are now under the law of christ which is a simple law of love and by doing that you fulfill the moral law one of the greatest teachers of the 20th century i think was a man named donald barnhouse he wrote extensively on this matter and in his commentary on the book of romans he said this and i'm going to finish with this quote romans 7 is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the bible because most people read it with an attitude it can't really mean what it says the theme here is that the believer is no longer under the law of god because he's been joined to christ in his resurrection and like an unexperienced swimmer the average christian stands in terror of the deep waters of this passage as he is called to completely abandon himself to the grace of God, and he is afraid to cast himself completely on the direction of the Holy Spirit. But once he does so, once he gets over the panic of self-abandonment, he finds that the grace of God sustains and carries him and calms him, and in time he feels secure in God's care. This is the promise of Romans, friend. This is the purpose of Romans, to help willing believers to recognize that by not being under the law, they can choose to cast themselves into and onto the grace of God. The text itself says that we are not under the law. We are now under grace, and by the grace of God, when we fulfill the love of God, we fulfill the law of God. End of quote, and that's it for today. Okay, friends, that's a long one today, so we'll wrap up quickly and just remind you that this podcast is hosted on the BibleProject.buzzsprout.com, and it's at that place you'll find all the links and all the free additional teaching and resource material. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from, but if you want access to the free material, you're best going that route to find the way through to it there. Places like the social networks, the Facebook page, my LinkedIn and YouTube channel, all the stuff where the additional free Bible study and Bible teaching resources are places, and even the Patreon page, the place where some people make the decision to partner with this ministry to become a patron and to uh, enable all this stuff I'm doing to be put out there for free on all these different social platforms.
So that's it for today. Thank you for joining with me and I do hope I'll see you back here tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.